0: Are you ready to make a difference in your career? Discover a different way forward with an education that fits into your life. Capella University's FlexPath learning format lets you take courses at your speed and move on to the next course whenever you're ready. Visit capella.edu to learn more. That's C A P E L L A.edu. When it comes to finding an unforgettable Mother's Day gift, Movement makes stylish watches and inspired jewelry as unique as she is. Movement's small team of dreamers in Venice Beach, California have perfected sleek, original, ultra-clean watch design and stunning, minimalist jewelry. And for Mother's Day, they're having a huge site-wide sell, so you can get a tried-and-true gift that won't break the bank movement offers fresh modern designs to go from nine to five workdays to five to nine good times and every adventure in between they use elegant precise japanese watch movements and industry leading materials from complex ceramics solar powered dials to upcycled ocean plastic cases so i've got a movement watch i got their field watch what i like about the movement field watch it has that classic military uh look of a field watch but it made it really sleek i really like that Uh, So it's that combination of rugged and refined that I like. So if you're looking for a Mother's Day gift, watch, jewelry, sunglasses. You can get it at Movement Watches. Save big on your best Mother's Day gift ever for movement. Get up to 40% off at MVMT.com and use code MANLINESS. Exclusions may apply. That's MVMT.com, code MANLINESS for up to 40% off. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The ancient Greeks and Romans thought a lot about what it means to live a virtuous life. They believed that good character was essential for achieving both individual excellence and a healthy, well-functioning society. For this reason, they also thought a lot about whether virtue could be taught to citizens. And philosophers put this thinking into practice by attempting to educate the moral ideals of leaders. My guest, Professor of Philosophy Massimo Pelucci, explores what the Greco-Romans discovered about the nature and teachability of virtue in his new book, The Quest for Character. Today on the show, Massimo and I discuss how the ancient Greeks and Romans defined virtue and what it meant to them to live with erite, or excellence. We then look at case studies of philosophers who tried to shape men into being better leaders, including Socrates teaching Alcibiades, Aristotle tutoring Alexander the Great, and Seneca mentoring Nero. Massimo explains how these field experiments turned out and the takeaways they offer on the question of whether virtue can be taught. We're in a conversation with the ancient insights that have been confirmed by modern research that can help us become better people. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash teachvirtue. Massimo Pialucci, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So you are a professor of philosophy and you got a new book out called The Quest for Character with the story of Socrates and Alcibiades teaches us about our search for good leaders. And this is a great, very readable introduction to moral philosophy. For those who aren't familiar with moral philosophy, how would you describe it? And you're an academic. How does moral (laughs) philosophy differ from a lot of the philosophy you see at academia today?
1: Oh, it differs a lot. So first of all, moral philosophy refers to uh, depending on who you ask, I guess. So in modern terms, uh, and that means for the last, uh, let's say, two and a half centuries, moral philosophy deals with the question of right and wrong. So if you're asking yourself, you know, I'm about to to do a particular act to carry out a particular action, is this a right or wrong thing to do? Then you're doing moral philosophy, whether you realize it or not. And there are a number of, you know, major theories in academic philosophy that deal with how to settle questions of right and wrong. So, for instance, you could be a utilitarian. You could say, well, you know, whatever is right is whatever has the best consequences and increases people's happiness. And whatever is wrong is whatever does the opposite. But in the sense in which I use it in the book, morality and ethics, which I use interchangeably, they mean the same thing to me, they're really about how to live your life. So, it's a much broader question than just is this action right or wrong? Of course how to live your life includes questions of right and wrong. Uh, We all face issues of, you know, should I do this or should I not do this? But it's much broader. For the ancient Greco-Romans, ethics or morality, which is really the, the Latin translation of the Greek word for ethics, means, you know, what kind of priorities should I have in life? What is important? What is not important? How should I behave with respect to other people? And how should I behave with respect to Myself, in a sense. What what are my priorities? Why am I doing what am I doing?
0: Why were the Greco-Romans, the Greeks and the Romans, so concerned with these questions? Particularly, we're going to talk about this today, particularly in regards to uh, leadership.
1: I think everybody's concerned with with these questions, but the Greco-Romans really put a lot of thought into it, in a sense. And that's one of the reasons why they're still so relevant to us today. You know, often people ask me... Why bother going back, you know, two millennia or two and a half millennia? Don't don't we things have changed in the meantime? Don't don't we do things differently? And the answer to that is well, yes and no. We do things differently, as in, you know, we have a lot of science and technology that the Greco-Romans certainly did not have. Aristotle would be stunned by uh, the way in which you and I are communicating right now, for instance. However, in terms of human nature, in terms of what we want and what we don't want, what we uh, aspire to and and what we want to stay away from, things haven't really changed that much. Uh, we're still going after the same things, and we're still afraid of the same of the same things. And that is why, Uh, The Greco-Romans are still relevant because they thought a lot about about this. They were not the only ones, of course. Uh, In ancient India, for instance, uh, uh, Buddha and and others, or in ancient China, Confucius and others, they pretty much similar thinking and arrived actually often at similar conclusions. But within the Western tradition, it is the Greco-Romans who really did most of the heavy lifting. So uh, Greco-Roman moral
0: philosophy is all about becoming virtuous. Uh, For these Greco-Roman moral philosophers, what did virtue mean? Because I think their idea of virtue is different from our popular idea of virtue today.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, today, if we think about the word virtue at all, we tend to think about the Christian version. uh, Because, of course, we come out of 2,000 years of uh, history of Christianity. And so we tend to think about things like uh, chastity and purity and things like that. That's not what the Greco-Romans were referring to. For the Greco-Romans, a virtue is a type of excellence. In fact, the Greek word is arete, which literally means excellence. And the idea, therefore, is to be the best human being you can be. And that, of course, means different things. And one of one of the important contributions of the Greeks and the Romans was to sort of unpack what that means. But the word excellence applies to all sorts of things, not just to human beings, for instance. I mean, you can have an excellent knife, which is defined as a knife that cuts very well, right? Well, that's a virtuous knife, according to uh, this way of thinking. So, in terms of being humans, what does it mean to be virtuous? Well, it means that you're very good at living with other human beings, because that's your job. That, that is what you do. And living according, well with other human beings, according to the Greco-Romans, fundamentally meant following four virtues practical wisdom courage justice and temperance practical wisdom is the knowledge of what is and is not good in general and for you in particular Uh, justice is the knowledge of how to treat other people you know fairly with respect the way in which you were wanted to be treated Courage is the knowledge that uh, you should be behaving in a certain way, regardless of the fact that it might cost you at a personal level. And then finally, temperance is a question of acting in the right way, in the right measure, not too much, not too little. If you follow those four, according to the Greco Romans, you're going to have a good life.
0: Well, as you said, uh, virtue for these guys meant excellence, being an excellent human being. But how they figured that out, like what does it mean to be an excellent human being? Everyone took different approaches. So, and just give people an idea. Like, what was the approach that Plato took, and can we maybe contrast that to how Aristotle tried to figure out what excellence meant or virtue meant?
1: Well, Plato actually did follow the four virtues that, that, that I just mentioned. Aristotle actually expanded that number because he was really into classifying things into taxonomy, and so he actually expanded the list to about 12, 12 virtues. But essentially, for both of them, a good human life, what they refer to as a eudaimonic life, eudaimonia in Greek just means a good life, a life worth living, is a life that works well for a human being. Now, let's, let's try to figure out how what that means. Let's say that um, you invite me over for dinner, and as a present, I bring you a plant. Let's say a cactus, right? Okay. And uh, now you now you have to take care of the cactus, okay? Now, in order to take care of the cactus, you have to know something about what makes cacti happy. Uh, if you just say, well, it's a plant, It wants lots of water, you're probably going to kill it because it's not a plant, it's a desert plant. Right. So it doesn't, yes, it does need water, but not too much. On the other hand, it does need a lot of light. If you put it in the shade, it's also gonna die, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there are certain things that are in the nature of cacti that make a particular type of life good for them and other kinds of lives not good. The Greco Romans recon- reasoned that the same goes for human beings. Human beings are a particular kind of animal. We are social animals endowed when you're very intelligent social animals, endowed with the ability to reason. We tend to solve our problems by, by reasoning about it. So a good human life, therefore, is a life that is social, where you interact in a positive fashion cooperatively with other human beings. And when you, you get to use... Your brain, basically, which is your most powerful evolutionary weapon, so to speak, uh, in order to solve problems. So human excellence means a high capacity to reason and a high ability to live socially.
0: And as you said earlier, uh, other cultures had similar ideas and maybe Confucianism is all about this. That's the same conclusion. Like we are social beings and the way they try to express virtue was different from how the Greco-Romans did. They had these very set rituals and uh, social protocols you're supposed to follow, but it was the same idea.
1: It is the same fundamental idea. And, you know, too many times often often these people are interested in the differences between philosophies. Oh, the Confucians think this, the Buddhists think that, the Stoics think that. Yeah, there are obviously differences. But what I think is more interesting, in fact, are the similarities. Because if the same idea occurred to different people across the globe and in different centuries, you know, maybe there is something to that idea. And so the, this notion that we ought to behave in a virtuous fashion, meaning cooperatively with other people, you know, be nice to other people, be be uh, cognizant of the fact that we are a society that, uh, for where the individuals depend on others in order to not only survive but actually thrive. Well, that uh, that idea has occurred to a lot of different people in different times and cultures, and so you know, probably there is something to it.
0: So the the Greco-Roman philosophers, they spent a lot of time thinking, debating about what is, what is virtue? What does it mean to be an excellent human? But then after that, they started thinking about, okay, can we teach other humans to be more virtuous? Can virtue be taught? This is an important question. This is how civil society can exist. And there's two Socratic dialogues that wrestle with this question. Can virtue be taught? And uh, what's interesting is they both come to different conclusions, which is disheartening. Um, Can you walk us through the arguments uh, as to whether virtue can be taught that are found in uh, the Mino and the Protagoras?
1: Yeah, so those are both, as you say, platonic dialogues. They both uh, feature Socrates, and Socrates comes up with two different conclusions, in fact, diametrically opposite conclusion. In, In the Mino, his conclusion is that no, you cannot teach virtue, very likely. And in the Protagoras, uh, he arrives at the opposite conclusion. Now, what do we make of this? First of all, we need to figure out what is it exactly that Socrates is doing there. In the Mino, Socrates uh, is debating the question of whether we can teach virtue. And in the end, he says, look, if if teacher were the kind of thing that you, you can teach, then I would expect to see teachers of it around. Right? Just in the same way in which you can teach other skills, and therefore you have uh, teachers, accordingly, uh, you should see a lot of teachers of wisdom. And he says, I don't see anybody. I don't I don't see anybody that can do that, that sort of stuff. So he tentatively concludes that virtue cannot be taught. However, that tentative conclusion is then reversed in the Protagoras. Now, Protagoras is an interesting dialogue because... Uh, it's named after a sophist, and the sophists were, uh, in a sense, the archenemies of Socrates. You know, there they, are several Platonic dialogues that feature uh, this, the debates between Socrates and uh, and the sophists. However, in this particular case, the sophist Protagoras, not only argues uh, with, successfully with Socrates, but Socrates at the end of the dialogue actually changes his mind. And he says, yeah, you're right. I, I, guess, I guess that's correct. Uh, virtue can be taught. And how does, does Socrates arrive to that stunning conclusion? Because he's convinced by a number of arguments that Protagoras puts forth, one of which is that uh, virtue is a little bit like, let's say, learning how to play an instrument. It's the kind of thing that requires a little bit of of theory. You 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 want to know a little bit about musical theory and musical notation if you want to be successful at playing an instrument. But mostly, it requires a lot of practice. And that practice is helped if you go and learn from somebody who is already a good practitioner of it. Right? Uh, In fact, Protagoras at some point says, look, Socrates, imagine that the survival, the very survival of our society dependent on everybody playing music, no matter how well, but everybody playing. What what do you think would happen? We would be teaching music to everybody. And some people would, of course, be virtuosos and would be really, really good uh, at what they're doing. Others would barely be able to produce a tune, but nevertheless... The skill can be taught to everybody and everybody would improve. And the idea is the same is true for virtue. Sure, some people are going to be naturally so much better. They're going to be much more pro-social, much more altruistic and whatever it is than others. But we can all improve. And part of that improvement comes through knowing what virtue is, so that's the theory, right, knowing where you want to go with this, but mostly it comes out of hanging around people like Socrates, who are actually already very virtuous, and that you can learn from just observing them and following them and uh, imitating them in a sense. So
0: the thing about Greco-Roman moral philosophers was that it wasn't just theory for them. They didn't just talk about these things in the agora. They actually tried to put the theory into practice, and uh, same thing happened with Socrates. And you use the relationship between Socrates and an Athenian playboy slash politician named Alcibiades uh, to explore this idea whether virtue can be taught. So in the Protagoras, Socrates is like, yeah, virtue can be taught. We're going to see this in action with Alcibiades. Why is Alcibiades such a great case study in whether virtue can be taught or not?
1: I think Alcibiades is a great case study because it is, in, in the end, a failure, a big failure. And we learn often more from failure than from success. Uh, Socrates did succeed in teaching virtue to other people. I mean, you can see not only in the platonic dialogues, but also in dialogues by another friend of Socrates, uh, Xenophon, that he actually does succeed in a number of cases. But with. have with Alcibiades, he, he failed spectacularly and he knows why he failed. And so there is this wonderful dialogue, the Alcibiades Major, which is attributed to Plato, although we don't really know whether Plato wrote it or not. But nevertheless, it is one of our major sources on, on the relationship between these two. And the dialogue features a young Alcibiades who was dashing and, and brave and full of himself, of course, and uh, handsome and rich, right? It was, it was everything that you could possibly want to be uh, as a young man. And he goes to uh, Socrates and says, look, I, I want to be a leader in Athens. I want to, you know, really make an impact here, make a difference. But I understand that I need help. And I need help from somebody like you, like my mentor, like Socrates, So the two start talking about it, and, and Socrates tries to figure out what kind of ideas Alcibiades has in mind. And at the end of the dialogue, the conclusion is stunning, because Socrates says, I'm sorry, Alcibiades, you just don't have the stuff that it takes. If you are going to do what you think, what you want to do, if you want to become a leader in Athens, this is going to be a disaster. And the reason it's going to be a disaster is because you don't care enough about virtue. You don't care enough about the common good. You really care only about yourself. You are, you know, self-aggrandizing narcissist, essentially, in in modern terminology. And, of course, it turns out that Socrates was right. Uh, Alcibiades ignores his advice And goes on anyway, and to lead Athens during the Peloponnesian War, and it is in fact a disaster. Alcibiades, I'm surprised that that, uh, Alcibiades' life has not been the uh, subject of a movie so far. Because it's it was really incredibly interesting, uh, and uh, you know he lived in one of the most interesting times in the history of uh, of ancient Greece. But nevertheless, he did exactly what Socrates predicted. It, it was a complete disaster that cost a lot of Athenian lives, and eventually the defeat of Athens in the Peloponnesian War.
0: What do you think the takeaway for for Socrates? I mean, maybe we don't know, but maybe from Socrates or Plato about Alcibiades. I mean. Like, what was the takeaway? Okay, if if a guy just doesn't want it enough, then you can't teach virtue?
1: <laughs> right. So, the, the idea is not dissimilar to what any modern teacher in any subject will tell you. If somebody doesn't want to be taught, there's nothing you can do about it. There's not much you can do about it. Uh, if the person is open, if the person is at, at least interested in genuinely learning something, then there is absolutely something you can do. Then you can definitely teach people. Uh, But if there is a mental closure, it's just not going to happen. Look, the best time to teach somebody, to start teaching somebody virtue and, and in general sort of how to live properly in a human society is when they're very young, very, very young, right? Which is one of the unfortunate tragedies of modern society. We don't teach moral philosophy. We don't teach how to behave to our kids. Uh, by and large. We teach them a lot of other stuff, but not really anything about ethics in the sense of how to live in a, in a human society. Once you get to the age of of Alcibaris, or in your 20s, let's say, or even later, there is not much there uh, left to do unless the person wants to improve, unless the person is, in fact, convinced that something needs to be done. It's a question, you know, Aristotle famously said that virtue is, by and large, a, a question of habit. You, you get into it, and then because you do it over and over and over, it kind of eventually becomes second nature. But guess, guess what? The best time to learn a habit, either in a, in a good sense or in a negative sense, is when you're a kid. Uh, if you get used to things, you know, uh, then then you'll do it. Let me give you a completely different example uh, that has to do not with virtue, but let's say with physical activity. Right? Uh, for years, I just wouldn't want to listen to when when people were tell me, you know, you need to get to the gym and start doing some exercise. Like no, because I wasn't exposed to that when I was a kid. I was not introduced to that way of thinking. It took me years of you know experience and self-reflection and all that and finally say, you know what? I don't like this thing, but I guess I need to do it because it's good for me. And now I've been doing it uh, regularly for a long time. But it came out of me, uh, not out of somebody else say, telling me, uh, you know this is good for you. I wouldn't listen. It took me quite a bit of time to get around to that idea. But if somebody had taught me when I was a kid, that would have been a completely different thing. And and that is why, you know, unfortunately, again, we do not spend enough time teaching our kids about these kind of things.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Advance is proud to offer free curbside services at most locations and for most vehicles to help drivers like you get back on the road. Head to your local Advance Auto Parts to get your existing battery tested for free. Need to buy a new battery? They can recommend and install one that's right for you including the powerful, durable, and reliable die-hard battery. Plus, advanced team members will test your starter and alternator to make sure your car starts and charges for even the longest of road trips. They'll also install your new wiper blades for free, loan out tools for your DIY projects, perform check engine light scanning, and more. Go to advancedautoparts.com, download the Advanced mobile app, or visit a store for more details. It's warming up, summer is almost here, summer means grilling, and Whole Foods can help you elevate your spread with quality proteins plus summer sides and desserts. Fire up the grill with animal welfare certified meat, including choice cuts like bone-in ribeye, top sirloin, and New York strip steak. Save with low prices on a wide range of dips and sides like organic pickles, organic coleslaw mix, spicy guacamole, roasted salsa verde, and more from 365 by Whole Foods Market. They have a huge selection of beer and wine, including wine made with organic grapes. Plus, there's always something delicious in the bakery. Lean into pies and just topping them off with 365 by Whole Foods Market ice cream. So every Friday night in the spring and in the the summer in the McKay household, it's burger night. And Whole Foods is what makes burger night happen for us, our grill-outs. Get the meat, the eighty twenty hamburger meat. They got the buns. The organic pickles from 365 by Whole Foods, fantastic. Uh, they, they are really good. They got the buns. They got the chips. They got everything you need. And we're looking forward to having more grill-outs with our friends included this summer as school gets out. And Whole Foods will be our place we go. Have more grill-outs this summer. Make summer happen at Whole Foods Market experiences are what people love the most about travel so last summer our family went to New Mexico um, it was just, it's a really great memory that we have for ourselves Viator is a website and app they offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures with over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries there's something for everyone plus when you book a travel experience with Viator there's always flexibility and support with free cancellation payment options and 24/7 service. So we used Viator recently for a trip we're planning for the end of the year. We're planning on going to Hawaii for the first time. We're really excited about this. So we used Viator to book a snorkeling experience. saved us a lot of time and it was so easy to book. And we're really excited and looking forward to that. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking. That's Viator10, R one zero for 10% off your first booking. One app, over 300,000 experiences. You'll remember, do more with Viator. Time is valuable. And if you have a growing business, it can take up to almost two and a half months to hire for an open position. Well, if you're listening today, here's some advice for you. Stop waiting and start using ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter can help you find qualified candidates for all your roles fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology works to quickly find and send you the most qualified candidates for your roles. Review the candidates ZipRecruiter sends you and you can personally invite the ones you're interested in to apply with one click which makes them apply even sooner. In fact, four out of five ZipRecruiter employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So speed up your hiring process with ZipRecruiter. See why 3.8 million businesses have come to ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness, M-A-N-L-I-N-E-S-S. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. Okay, so Socrates failed with Alcibiades. Uh, You highlighted some other philosophers who tried to uh, put this idea that virtue can be taught into practice by coaching, mentoring, teaching other leaders. Another famous one was Aristotle. Uh, He famously tutored Alexander the Great. When did that, that relationship start? And do you think Aristotle was successful in teaching virtue to Alexander?
1: Well, the the, the relationship between Aristotle and Alexander started fairly early, although not as early as it would have been ideal. Uh, I think um, Alexander was 16 or something like that, 16 or 17, when uh, he was being taught by Aristotle. And yes, Aristotle did have certainly an impact on Alexander. In fact, in a sense, one could argue, and I do argue in the book, that Alexander went above and beyond uh, what Aristotle taught him. For instance, one of the ideas that Aristotle insisted on was the importance of Pan-Hellenism, that is, of the notion that all of Greece should be unified uh, in order to, uh, you know, function as a broader society and um, and being more resistant to, to invasions from the outside, like the Persians, for instance, which from time to time we're, we're making trouble well uh, Alexander took that idea and ran with it he actually conceived of, of unifying the entire planet <laughs> under his banner uh, and that is in fact uh, a major that was a major, major motivation for the, uh, for building his empire now of course we today wouldn't go about unifying humanity by building an empire presumably we wouldn't think that that's, that's the right way to do it but uh Alexander really was into it, in part at least, because he thought it was a good idea to uh, uh, unify people of different cultures. So, in a sense, Aristotle did have a significant impact on on Alexander. Alexander kept for the rest of his life, for instance, a copy of Homer's um, Iliad annotated by Aristotle. And uh, and he used it, you know, to... to Frequently, as a, sort of a guide for his own thinking and his own uh, preparing uh, for what he was he was doing. So, yeah, there was a that's that's an example of fairly positive influence by a philosopher uh, over a you know statesman. The problem there, too, however, is that I think that was a little too late again, because by the time Aristotle got to. To Alexander, Alexander was already had already been bred to be a conqueror, and had already been bred to be, uh, you know, the the heir of his of his father to the Macedonian throne, and so he already had a way of looking at things that would have been pretty difficult for Aristotle to dramatically alter.
0: Okay, so on that case study, kind of successful with Alexander, (laughs) yeah. Um, you highlight another one. Um, it's a Roman Stoic philosopher. And this is in your wheelhouse. You, you write a lot and uh, research a lot about Stoicism. Seneca was a, an advisor to Nero. Tell us about yeah. that relationship. And you, you, because you point out Seneca, he was, he was a, a Stoic philosopher, but he was kind of a mixed bag when it came to living up to his ideals in terms of his you know, politics and even his philosophy. Why is that? And then you know, how did Seneca go about teaching Nero?
1: That's another interesting story uh, in and of itself. I mean, Seneca, yes, as you just pointed out, was a Stoic philosopher who certainly did not uh, live up to the full expectations of, of a Stoic, but he was also very aware of it. He was, in fact, in a sense, humble about it. He, he wrote to his friend Lucilius at some point. Look, don't 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 come to me for advice. I'm just as wretched as anybody else. I mean, I'm I'm trying to do my best, but it's not like I can teach anybody. I'm just a, I'm just as sick as anybody else, and and I'm just trying to do my best. So he actually was very aware of his own limitations, in a sense, which is more than you can say for a lot of people. I I would argue. Yeah. Now, in terms of Nero, the the standard story is that that Seneca completely failed, you know, in fact, that he was complicit in in some of Nero's crimes during his regime, etc. But that's not quite, that's a little simplistic. Uh, The reality is, as often is the case, it's a little bit more complicated. turns out that Seneca, uh, together with a colleague who was the the head of the Praetorian Guard, which was the, the special guard of the emperor... They were actually able to uh, pretty much rein in Nero for the first five years. The first five years of Nero's reigns are referred to by historians as the Quinquennium Neronis, which literally means five years of Nero. And they were a good time for for Rome. Uh, there was prosperity. Uh, there was, you know, the, the, the empire's uh, borders were secure. People experienced a good life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so things actually went pretty well. In the beginning, but Nero was unhinged, and he became more and more unhinged and difficult to control. And Seneca realized that. And in fact, he he, he tried to retire, and uh, Nero didn't didn't want uh, Seneca to retire because he felt that he needed uh, the regime needed basically the support or the endorsement of of the famous philosopher and the esteemed statesman that that Seneca was, and. This this thing, this back and forth went on for for a while until Seneca eventually tried to bribe the emperor, and says, "Look, look, I'm going to give you most of my fortune. Fortune, I don't care. I just want to, you know, get out of the way." Uh, and in the end, of course, uh, the the result, the end result was that Nero, at one point, suspected that Seneca was involved in a conspiracy, in a failed conspiracy against the emperor, which he probably wasn't. But Seneca probably didn't know about the conspiracy and didn't tell the emperor, which for all effective purposes is being involved in the conspiracy. And so Nero ordered uh, Seneca to commit suicide, which he did in, in classic Stoic fashion. He, he did it sort of imitating his role model, which was Socrates. So that's another story that has a mixed bag kind of situation, right? And if in the book, there are several. Along those lines, and the bottom line, the the, the end message there is like, look, if you want to try to teach somebody else, uh, doing it rather late in his life, it's not a good idea because it's not likely to succeed. The success stories in the book tend to come from people who themselves want to improve, want to become better persons. They want to uh, practice philosophy in their lives. And so one classic example there is Marcus Aurelius, one of the famous Roman emperors, right? So the, the bottom line, the message there is that if we're talking about teaching somebody else, that has to be done under one of two conditions, either very early on in their lives, so that you set them in the right habits, or if they really are prone prone and 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 ready uh to be taught if they want that otherwise it's much better to actually bet on somebody who is already of his own accord going in the right direction he's striving already on his own accord because those are the people that really want to do the right thing
0: yeah that second approach of you pick the leader instead of trying to train leaders to be good leaders because that's probably you're probably gonna be too late the idea is you pick people to be your leaders who are already philosophers, and this is like the idea. This is this this goes back to Plato in the Republic. had hey, this idea: we want to pick uh, the philosopher kings to be our leaders.
1: Right now, remember that that of course, philosopher at the time in in, in this particular context doesn't mean somebody mm-hmm. like me with a. PhD in philosophy who does academic uh, you know scholarship it meant somebody who lives philosophy as a as a way as a practical life right So philosophy is the art of living. So a philosopher you know it's, it's very easy to laugh at um, condescendingly at Plato and say, oh yeah sure the last thing I, we want is to have philosophers in charge that's because we tend to think of philosophers as these people with the head in the cloud who think about abstruse subject matters but what Plato meant there, was a philosopher here is somebody who lives philosophically and therefore anybody can be a philosopher it doesn't doesn't require a phd <laughs> yeah
0: so, yeah you gave the example marcus aurelius is an example of that this is a, yeah. a young man he's been he was philosophizing since he was a boy and he carried mm-hmm. that on through his adulthood
1: right and another example which i also describe in the book is cato the younger who was a Roman senator and archenemy of uh, of Julius Caesar, and Cato was not a philosopher in the academic sense of the term. He never wrote a book about philosophy. He wasn't, you know, spending his time thinking about abstruse matters. What he was doing is he was living the life of a Roman senator and statesman, and he was trying to do it with integrity. And in fact, he was so famous for that that. If in Rome somebody, you know, slipped up and, and, and was doing something not quite right, uh, often the excuse would be, "Well, not everybody can be a Cato." So, so Cato was this such such a well-known role model that people would, would say, "You know, it's only Cato can be that good. I, I'm not. I'm not Cato." So that's another good example of somebody who tried to live by his principles, it tried to live philosophical, and largely succeeded.
0: So, but there's also cases where it didn't succeed, right? Like uh, you know, Socrates wasn't a, a politician per se. I don't think he'd call himself that. He was a philosopher, but he right. did have an influence on the state, right? And it's why he got executed because the, the state thought he was causing too much trouble. And that's one of the, the problems when you try to live philosophically. Sometimes you doesn't it doesn't end well for you.
1: Yes, unless you're an epicurean, because if you're an epicurean, then uh, you close yourself into your garden with uh, with your friends and forget the rest of the world. So you're you're fine. Yeah, you're right. You have you have a good point there. But then again, we're talking about intentions. We're not talking about outcomes. We don't control outcomes. Of course, there is no guarantee of succeeding. Right? You you can have you can be the best person. Uh, in the world, you can have the best intentions and even very good skills, and nevertheless, you're not going to succeed because the external circumstances are, are such that uh, success becomes impossible. I mean, Socrates, we have we have to remember in uh, historical terms, Socrates was living most of his life during the Peloponnesian War, which was a disaster for Athens, which went on for decades, uh, which cost a lot of lives and, and resources and so on and so forth. And he lived not only during the period of democracy, but also during the, the period of the 30 tyrants, which, as the name implies, uh, was, not a, was not a particularly bright and, 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 and happy period for Athens. So the external circumstances are always going to be, certainly to a large extent, determining the, the outcomes, right? But what we can do is to try our best. And that is why the figure of Socrates is so important still, two and a half millennia after his death. I mean, yes, he did die, but he died, in a sense, on purpose. Uh, he knew that uh, he could escape. Uh, his, his friends had bribed the guards in prison and it was pretty n- normal for people who were condemned to death to just disappear at the last minute and move to another city and and be fine. He didn't want to do that. Uh, his, he, his position was one of principle. He said, you know, I lived... Well, and I thrived under the the laws of Athens for most of my life. What am I going to do now that, that, that those laws are turned against me? I'm just going to quit because I don't I don't want to play by the rules anymore. So he set an example, essentially, right? Uh, and it's a it's a difficult example, of course, to follow. It's this is this is a high level example, but then again, that's why we remember Socrates and not a lot of other people.
0: Okay, so the lessons from the Greco Roman moral philosophers that uh, virtue can be taught. Um, if you try to do it too late in life, it's going to be probably too late. But have, are there any insights from, say, modern cognitive science or modern psychology that we can combine with the insights from Greco-Roman philosophy to figure out you know, how can we help people be better people?
1: Yes, there are. Uh, interestingly, in, again, another reason why the Greco-Romans is so important is because they got a lot of stuff, not everything, but I got a lot of stuff right uh, that modern cognitive science, modern psychology actually, in fact, confirms and, of course, expands on. Obviously, the Greco-Romans didn't carry out systematic experiments on, you know, uh, randomized samples of people and all that sort of stuff. But a lot of what modern psychologists are learning about virtue and about wisdom and about uh, you know character, it actually does uh, reflect the intuitions of the Greco-Romans. For instance, one thing that does work, uh, according to modern psychologists, in order to improve your character is to pick role models. If you uh, imagine, when you have to make a decision, if you imagine in your mind uh, somebody who you regard highly looking over your shoulders, you're more likely to make the right decision. And that person that you imagine could be somebody you actually know, you know, like your grandmother, let's say. Uh, It could be a fictional even uh, role model, or it could be somebody you don't know, but you know of and that you admire. The point is you do that exercise mentally. Whenever you're making a big decision, you think, you ask yourself, well, what would Socrates do? And uh, the 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 empirical data show that uh, you're more likely to do the right thing. Well, that technique of of picking a role model is certainly a stoic technique. It's certainly something that Aristotle would have uh, have approved. Another thing that we know that works is active uh, self-reflection. So things like keeping a a philosophical journal. Uh, We mentioned Marcus Aurelius. He's He's famous because of... The Meditations, right? This book that he wrote, but he did not write it as a book for publication. It, this was his actual, his, his personal philosophical diary. He, he put down his own thoughts that were meant to help him carry out some continuous self-analysis and self-criticism in the in the process of improving as an individual. Turns out, modern cognitive behavioral therapy will tell you that that actually is a very effective technique to keep that kind of of, of journal, and in fact even to keep it in the way in which Marcus was keeping it. That is, for instance, uh, one of the odd things from the point of view of a modern reader about the meditations is that it is within the second person. So Marcus writes to himself, but he writes as if he were writing to a friend. You did this or you did not do this, right? Now, what the hell is he doing that? Uh, a modern cognitive therapist would tell you, well, the reason for that is because he's trying to keep some distance, some cognitive distance between his own actions and the fact that he wants to learn from his actions. So, if he were to write in the first person and using very emotional language, he would simply get caught up into the emotional component of what he, what he was doing and not learn much from his experiences. Instead, he's using very neutral, very analytical language and he's using the second person. And that those, those tricks actually work. They're, they're very good. Uh, modern cognitive science also tells us that some of the things that this, the ancient Greco Romans thought did not work do not in fact work. Uh, one of the big ones is do nothing. Now you would say, yeah, of course, doing nothing doesn't doesn't work. But we a lot of people today think that uh, or seem to think that uh, you know the way you get all you get uh, wiser is just by getting older. Uh, Older people become wiser, but in fact, that's simply not the case. Becoming old is necessary but not sufficient condition, as philosophers would would put it, for for becoming wise. Just, Just because time passes, that doesn't mean you're learning anything from your experiences. You have to learn actively. You have to pay attention to your experiences, and then you're learning. So it turns out that in order to be wise, you do need age because you need experience. Uh, it's hard to imagine a you know 15-year-old who is wise. Uh 15-year-old may be in, in you know ahead of his own age or her age or more mature, et cetera. But wise is kind of hard because they haven't had enough life experiences to reflect on uh, to actually be wise. But then again, you know, I'm sure you like myself know a lot of people in their 50s, 60s, or 70s who are definitely not wise because they have experience, but they didn't pay attention to it. So not doing anything, uh, you know, not reflecting critically on your own experiences, not learning actively from what you're doing, uh, it's certainly a pro- problematic. It, it gets in the way of, of developing wisdom.
0: And I think something else that the Greco-Romans got right that's being confirmed by cognitive psychology, you um, highlight research by a guy named Miller. Uh, we had him yep. on the podcast, you wrote the book called The Character Gap. And he just talked mm-hmm. about different studies that show that when people in positions of power... Um, they tend to think that they're good because they're in charge. Like, well, if I'm in charge, it must be good. The Greco-Romans be like, you know, Socrates would be like, well, no, you, you might be in charge. It doesn't necessarily mean you're a good person. So that's where that self-reflection comes along, having role models to kind of put you in check. Like, I guess the, the, the Renaissance or medieval um, philosophers would call it a mirror, right? You want a mirror that you can look into to see what you really are.
1: That's right. That's right. And another kind of mirror, which again was... Uh, very much at the forefront of uh, the uh, the minds of the Greco-Romans, and it is confirmed by research like the one that Christian Miller uh, wrote about, is friendships, good friends. Right? So, what helps you improve uh, is, in fact, hanging around the right people. Uh, this is probably not very surprising, right? It's, it's what your mom probably told you when you were a kid, you know, just be careful who you hang around with. Uh, but it does work. If you hang around people who are not good, who are not virtuous, who are not trying to improve themselves, then you're probably going to slide down into, you know, uh, dangerous territory. While on the other hand, if you surround yourself with people who are, uh, you know, at least as good or even better than than, than than yourself and they're trying to strive to go in the right direction, then you will as well. So, who you frequent is very important. And I took this to heart. I mean, in, in you know, at some point a few years ago, I started looking at the kind of people I was hanging around and I said, hey, okay, some people are really in that category. Others, not so much. And I need to, f- to make decisions. I need to figure out, do I really want to do certain things or hang around certain people? Because if it's not f- good for either me or them, as it turns out, uh, then why are you doing it?
0: Well, Massimo, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: Well, it's easy. There is a site called massimopilucci.org and everything about my work, my podcasting, my essays and my books is there. Fantastic. Well, Massimo, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. My guest today is
0: Massimo Pelucci. He's the author of the book, The Quest for Character. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, massimopilucci.org. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash teach virtue. We find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanlius.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code Manlius to check out for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you not listening on podcast, but put what you've heard into action.
1: In a stylish Toyota Camry, there's no such thing as an average commute to the office. Off to work. woo And with its available V6 engine, there's no run-of-the-mill drives to
0: the pet groomer. Let's take the long way, Tiger. Because the always fun-to-drive, no matter where you're going Toyota Camry, is the cure for the common, well, everything. Next stop, the hardware store. To check out the Camry for yourself, visit your local Toyota dealer or Toyota.com today. Toyota. Let's go places. See packages and options at Toyota.com for feature availability.